You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr Paul Campbell. Paul is Vice-Principal of ESF Sha Tin Junior School in Hong Kong. He's also on a partial secondment to the ESF Centre for Research where he leads the Seeds of Leadership program. He's a partner tutor at the University of Dundee working on MED programs and educational studies and an external reviewer for MED programs at the University of Hong Kong. Paul is Chair of the International Professional Development Association and Co-Coordinator of the Educational Leadership Network for ICSI, the International Congress of School Effectiveness and Improvement. Paul is also on the Editorial Board of the Journal Management and Education and sits on the Advisory Board for the Leadership for Professional Learning Symposium. He's a very busy person. Welcome, Paul. Thanks so much, Dan. Great to be here. Let's start the conversation. And my first question is really around the incredible amount of places that you've worked and that you work with. So you're a Scotsman whose PhD thesis was based in the Scottish context. You're working as a school leader in Hong Kong. You've worked in Spain and in Australia, in Ballarat and Victoria, I think. And you're connected to a wide range of global colleagues. So I'm wondering how your work across countries and between educational systems is influenced by or enriched by that international flavour and experience. I started off and wanted to be a primary school teacher and had a very clear idea in my head, the contribution that I wanted to make within the Scottish system. And I think that the key realisation or I guess a pivotal moment was coming towards the end of the Bachelor of Education programme that I was doing and realised actually the, the laudable aims of what the Scottish system were trying to achieve for education. And I guess in terms of there was a big change in curriculum, huge consequences for, I guess, expectations of teaching and learning that came with that. But then the challenges the system was facing to actually bring it to any sort of sustainable realisation. I was coming to the understanding at the end of a B.Ed, the role of research within that. So I was always quite excited about understanding and learning about different systems and thought that I should take advantage of the opportunity to actually go and immerse myself in these different systems. And I think it does enrich. I mean... I always remember one of the head teachers that I worked for as I was just about to leave Scotland said to me, Paul, you do know that if people want to find out about different places or experience different things, just go on holiday. You don't need to live there. And it's always kind of stuck with me because I panicked a little bit thinking, maybe I shouldn't be going or maybe I shouldn't do this. But I think what was different was being able to immerse yourself, not just in a different community, but actually it was a different community of educators. So you have access to stories, to insights, to people, to ideas that sit outside the typical international research or professional associations because you happen to be there. I mean, especially with Spain, for example, as soon as I've learned Spanish, that was a huge thing. Whereas I realised, it's like, hold on a minute, I'm getting access to people, to stories and ideas that I wouldn't get access to normally because I would be relying on them being able to speak or articulate that in English in their second language. I think what it brings is like new, it's new insights, I guess, that bring together different ideas of culture, expectations, the role and purpose of education, and how all of these intersect to bring out new ideas. That was what was really pivotal in Spain. Australia was different in another sense, that you're going to another English-speaking context with a lot of shared histories. 
but also hugely different histories and contexts as well. A federal system compared to a devolved system in Scotland. It was always the systems that fascinated me and how you were able to engage with others and the ideas that came from that. And then I guess kind of a post-colonial context in Hong Kong as well, sitting and working within the international system, but close relationship and connection with the publicly funded system as well. There's a lot of tensions and opportunities that sit with that. So I think it's the, the, ultimate, the ultimate thing that enriches the experience is always the people that you end up having connection with or even just simply access to. I've not quite mastered Cantonese yet, but hopefully that will enrich something if I ever get to that stage as well. But yeah, it's, it's been really enriching, I think. And as you think about your work in all those different systems, so Spanish, Australian, Scottish, Hong Kong, do you notice more similarities or more differences when you think about, you know, the aims, the purpose, the, the systems and procedures of education? Is there a through line or is it that they're actually quite contextually different? I mean, I think the, the, the through line is definitely the role of tradition, um, the role of tradition in terms of, especially with pedagogical practices, I think, in terms of the variation, I haven't seen a huge amount, which I find fascinating. Obviously, I mean, I see it often, and it's maybe not the right way to articulate it, but with pedagogical practice sitting on a form of a continuum and actually you kind of lean to different sides or place yourself at different spots in different moments and I think that part's contextually dependent because I think the role that I see curriculum frameworks playing in different places and the role the autonomy within systems as well about what you're drawing upon has a huge influence in terms of the consequences or implications for what pedagogical practice need to sit with that so if it's a, an inquiry-orientated, um, internationally-focused, inquiry-based curriculum, that has very clear implications for what pedagogical practices and broader student experience need to sit alongside that, where it's much more standards-based, outcomes-focused that characterises the public system in Hong Kong, as well as in Catalonia, and the same to a degree in the early days of my teaching career in Scotland. That was much more reflective of what the broader community or those with a stake in the broader public policy debate understood of what schools and education is all about. So when we did see big shifts in Scotland, for example, to a much more student-centred and inquiry-focused approach to curriculum and to learning and teaching by consequence as well, the debate always then often centred back in certain domains to what is this meaning for standards and the quality of education that's always been so high in Scotland. And it was the same, I guess, in my experience in Australia as well. I mean, that was very school context dependent um, but what it was interesting or illuminating in the sense of the role of different systemic structures that afford autonomy over nearly every aspect whether it's curriculum or learning and teaching or assessment what that affords and what enables schools to do in terms of I suppose a community responsive approach but a community owned approach to what that school experience looks like feels like and actually is and what it results in so I think the common thread is, I think, the role of tradition, but the, the huge variation is very context dependent is, I guess, the place of communities within systems to actually have a say, never mind a stake, in what schools offer society or the community there as well. So you said that you wanted to be an educator from quite young. You had yeah. some pretty clear aims about, about why, what mm. you wanted to bring to that, what you wanted your contribution to be. Mm. And I don't know what those are, but as you reflect on those and you've obviously had to align yourself or fit in with or operate within different systems and different schools in quite different places. Mm -hmm. And now you're in a fairly senior school leadership role as well. So how do you either fit yourself into the place that you're in? How do you approach that? Or how do you approach the sorts of positive change that you want to see 
in a place that might have more autonomy or less or be more aligned with your own aims and values or less aligned? And that's a really difficult question, but it's a great question, of course, because I think everything has to, I mean, it has to come back down to what what do you think education is all about and how do you see your role within that and whatever role you play within a community. And I think that's always kind of, or what's grounded me or what's kind of centred me, as well as then influence what choices I make about where I go and why and when. I could have stayed in Scotland for longer to start with, but it was very much an orientation towards, and I guess a consistent emphasis on the fact that for me, education is about developing a sense of self and an understanding of the communities we're a part of and then how we can take action within those communities. And so that's been the central focus as a teacher, as a leader, now as a vice principal as well. That is what is at the centre of my decision making or how I make sense of where we find ourselves. The cha- so the challenge has been, though, is that you can make decisions about where to go and what you want to experience in the pursuit of that goal, whether that's on a much more micro level focused on the community that you're serving or globally in terms of a contribution you want to make through research engagement, contribution, or to systems in lots of different ways that are possible. And I guess the challenge I had was at the start of my career, I didn't know what those options were. I didn't know that I could be part of a global community of policymakers, practitioners, and researchers through XA or IPTA or Belmass or whoever. These were things that happened by accident, but the intentionality behind it was that commitment to, right, that's the contribution I want to make as an educator. I want to go and experience these different systems to see how do they do it. And I still remember early days when I was still maintaining a blog, writing about the fact that it's about, I want to spend this time experiencing different systems synthesizing what I'm learning from it and being able to bring that back to the system in Scotland and make an even more hopefully impactful contribution. But what I guess as I matured as a professional as well, it was all and as a person, it was about realizing, right, but it's not about me. It's a, it's about the connections you make, the collaboration that you're able to foster and what you're able to do through that. And so I think that for me it's been very much about trying to make choices about where I might be wanting to to work, to live, to make contributions of time, effort, energy, and making choices about that and being confident that it does bring me back to, right, this is what my central focus is. This is what I'm learning from it. This is what I hope I'm contributing to. And then still being orientated towards, right, how am I making sense of this? How am I making connections between these experiences, these insights, and what am I doing with it? And so I can more confidently reflect on, right, well, this is how I'm using it in my day-to-day professional practice. This is how I'm using it through the research that I'm wanting to do, uh, the writing that I'm trying to do, the collaborations with others across the globe, etc. But the thing that comes with that, though, is a, a permanent state of uncertainty or flux or whatever you want to call it, in the sense of, because you're always thinking about, am I in the right place? Is this the right time? And what's coming next? And there's never a clear answer to that. And you sound like a, what I might call a, a pathological learner. <laughs> <laughs> if I think about that, you've been seeking these experiences of both learning and contribution, you know, you've completed a PhD, you're in all these kind of advisory and, and network groups, and it's this sort of seeking of knowledge and connection and community. What is it that anchors you in your in your work in all of these things? Is there something that kind of, you know, holds you as an anchor? I think the thing that can, I guess, would hold me as an anchor is that I always think that systems can and need to do better. I mean, I think of the pivotal moments we've all had with individual students throughout our careers. 
And the thing that always draws me back into reflecting on those pivotal, whether it's conversations, whether it's tears, whether it's anger, whatever it might be, is that our systems need to do better and they can do better. But it's about being committed to making connections, to learning and to collaborating. So that's what I think anchors me is that constant commitment that we need to learn, we need to connect, we need to collaborate and we need to use that in lots of different ways. So I very much see that the various opportunities that are out there for us to take advantage of or to take risks on thinking, right, this might not be for me, but I'm going to try it anyway. Um, that kind of brings me back to this, I guess it's both a commitment and this realisation I had a few years ago that this is what I can actually use to try and affect change in whatever way is possible with an emphasis on that it has to be collective, it has to be collaborative. And we can't do that unless people are actually coming and sitting at different tables, hearing different stories, getting different perspectives and contributing different ideas in different ways. And with an orientation towards, right, what action results from this at whatever level you're able to do that or within whatever sphere of influence you're able to do that too. So really positive change, doing better for all of the students in all of the education systems. Just a small, just a small, (laughs) just a small aspiration. (laughs) Nothing short of that. Nothing short of that. I mean, one thing you've talked about as you've been talking is not just, you know, what's happening in schools, but what's happening in research, what's happening in policy rooms, what's happening in, um, you know, connected global communities of educators. And one of the things that you you and I have worked on together over Mm. some time now, actually, is this concept of pracademia. So we have had multiple Zoom meetings about it where we've talked about it, we've written about it, we've presented in person in Morocco and then online in webinars in symposia around this emerging concept. uh, Mm. And we've been called academics sometimes we've called ourselves that sometimes others have called us that so I think some of what you're talking about with that notion of community certainly when we wrote that paper for the journal of professional capital and community we talked about identity community and engagement as aspects of the space of pracademia so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your understanding of that concept that we've been playing with and also why you think you're drawn to it why it's important Yeah, and I mean, I think I have to start by saying how important I think that work has been on a personal level, but I think for the education community more broadly, because it's been a sense-making process. Personally, I found that, and I think that for the colleagues that we've engaged with, as part of trying to conceptualise what pracademia or the pracademic is, it's been about sense-making and trying to understand how is it that I'm operating? What impact is it I'm trying to have? And how does this differ from the norms of how we demarcate role, place, space, and function within these spaces as well? And I think it's important because we've talked a lot about the fact that it's about reimagining the possibilities for how we create knowledge and how we mobilize it or apply it. And I think that's, that's hugely important. We've talked about the fact that the challenges that we face as a society only become more complex as time goes on, but also the role that education, not just is expected, but I think also still needs to play, becomes even more demanding as well. And that that takes something different. I think it's a responsibility as well that we have to try and make sense of the fact that there are alternative ways that we can understand how knowledge is created about communities, about how we learn, about how education can be better, about disciplines that span beyond education as well, in the pursuit of making things better, bringing about change, making improvements, however we want to articulate it. And we need to go through that process of sense-making, conceptualising what it might offer, 
to actually be able to challenge the norms of how systems operate. And I think I keep on coming back to systems because I really do believe that it's as much as you hear that age old phrase that it's, it's, it's not about the system, it's about the practices. I think it's, you can't just dismiss the fact that systems frame how we are able to operate, what's problematized, what's not, what repertoire responses we have or are possible and what aren't. And I think what the exploration of the pracademic as an identity marker and pracademia as a space of operation offers us is ways of kind of breaking down the barriers that traditionally exist about who operates where, for what purpose and for what outcome to think about, right, what actually, what what's possible? What could be done differently given the fact that we're working in a time period and an age where there's so much more access, whether it's through social media, through technology, or just through different ways of thinking to actually come together in different ways and learn about things in different ways as well. And importantly, how we use and apply that. So I think some look at it as kind of a this agenda that we want to uh, destroy the, I guess, the traditional ways of thinking about academia and practice and whose knowledge is more important. And it's I feel like it's the opposite of that. It's about an acknowledgement of this is how we currently understand knowledge creation and mobilization for the purpose of practice policy and research. But what we are trying to make sense of is the fact that it doesn't follow those traditional markers or paths or boundaries anymore. But the challenge that will still remain for us is the fact that in terms of our dominant professional role or whatever our predominant commitment is, we are still required to make choices about what is the main thing, what is our main role or job, which doesn't necessarily reflect the nuance and the complexity of what, how we are defining what it means to be a pracademic or operate in a space that could be called pracademia. And it's been really interesting when we have presented or written how many people have sort of come out of the woodwork and said, you know, this really resonates with me. But I think what we've been trying to do is make it less about something that feels like it resonates and more something that is has some conceptual clarity. Mm-hmm. And probably we're speaking some sometimes to people who are a bit like us, and but it's actually more than that. So you and I are both people who have been drawn to research and to integrating that into our work. You know, we've been people who've worked full-time in schools teaching and leading, but also doing a PhD on the side uh, and engaging in these sort of research and academic networks. And I certainly remember I've been to a number of research conferences, educational research conferences in Australia and elsewhere, like the US, and I'm the only teacher sometimes there, the only school practitioner in these spaces. And then I hear academics saying, why doesn't, why aren't people engaging with our work? And it's that separation. Uh, so that mm-hmm. idea of pracademia as a space that is betwixt and between and liminal and uh, where people who are in education are boundary spanners or are working across and within and between spaces, or if not that, then at least with rich collaboration with each other. I think that's what we're aiming for is actually speaking together and working together for, as you say, the possibilities of of where we might be able to take things collectively and collaboratively. Absolutely. And I think it comes down is that, I think is a really important point, is the collaboration element, is that the roles we play in different forms of collaboration for different purposes is what I think we're trying to rethink or conceptualize with a bit more clarity in terms of what we're noticing with those that may identify with ideas around pracademia and the pracademic. Because we've had conversations where I'm still not sure if I would define myself as a pracademic, but I definitely identify with the space of pracademia. I think that's because it's more about the richness of the collaboration that's possible when you are in spaces that bring together these people from different spaces, different roles, different places as well. And I think that it's an interesting point you make as well about when you do go to certain conferences and 
or you're on certain boards or committees where you are the only person coming predominantly from a place of practice, despite the fact you've got maybe now credentials or recognition in spaces of research or policymaking or whatever. And that's one thing I find interesting is in a lot of these spaces I've noticed over recent years is that when you do have the credentials in these different spaces, then it's the other elements are ignored. So even that's even common, I think, in sites of practice that you might have lots of um, experience with engagement with research and policymaking, but when you're in a context and site of practice, the rest of that often, not necessarily that it's not valued, is that it's not necessarily seen. And I think the same could be said, I've noticed the same, and whether it's research or especially around uh, publications and boards in relation to that, the expectation is you're there in an academic capacity. So that's the form your contribution will take in terms of recognising the fact that you're also bringing insights and perspectives from your predominant place of work, which is in a site of practice rather than a site of academia, for example. It's not necessarily seen as, not that it's not important. I think the key thing is that it's not just, it's just not seen unless mm. we're explicitly making the connection to it or establishing these, whether it's forums, opportunities, boards, etc., with a view to connecting these interdependent domains of policy practice and research. Yeah, and when we have talked to people who are, tend to be working in the space of pracademia, whether that's people in any space but who are connecting in with and bridging spaces in education, there is that sense that a lot of that sometimes is unpaid or is voluntary or is out of passion and enthusiasm and commitment to a purpose rather than uh, that it's that it's as you say the main role that they hold that might be on their resume or something like that Mm. Uh, and you talked quite a lot about collaboration and I'm interested to talk a bit more about that because you're somewhat of an expert in collaboration Uh, (laughs) you just recently completed your doctorate at the University of Glasgow on collaboration and the title is collaboration the ubiquitous panacea for challenges in education and I think it's really interesting because in it as you point out collaboration is often heralded as this linchpin of school improvement do collaboration and and education will improve do collaboration and um, student outcomes will improve but what does that actually mean and what are people doing with it is there a shared understanding is there a shared practice so I guess I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about collaboration in education and and maybe also what what are what does it need to look like what is good collaboration in what you found what should we be aiming for and that's the question I feel like I still haven't answered after the however many hundred page thesis the genesis of this research was from a frustration with collaboration that it was viewed as being this linchpin. I mean, I think it even needs a stronger word than linchpin. It was essential as the foundation to any form of improvement. But it was also across systems reconceptualizing what it means to be a professional. Collaboration was intrinsic to these varied conceptualizations of the professional across different uh, disciplines and professions as well. And I had a fascination with this because the experience I'd had in a variety of systems was of collaboration being intrinsic to a way of operating, but not usually leading to the outcomes that we hope from it. And I think that then I chose to focus very much so on the Scottish education system and looking at the leadership and governance of collaboration as a policy tool, but then also trying to illuminate what insights we can get from not just the analysis of the policy context in relation to that, but what the lived reality was for leaders in the system trying to make sense of this drive for collaboration. I think what really came from that was that there was a consistent emphasis on collaboration across the policy context, but in terms of specifics of the forms that it took or how it was enabled to happen, much of that was left to chance, despite the fact it was consistently articulated as being the linchpin 
to securing improvement and change. And this was what the insights from the school leaders that I'd interviewed um, as part of this um, research was their insight was that collaboration is one of the most difficult things that they lead or engage in. It's consistently emphasised and built into how not just their schools are structured, but how the systems are structured. But very little of the collaboration that they engage in, particularly within the middle tier of the system and nationally, actually is what they would characterise as collaboration. And what I found fascinating was one of the participants interviewed, they were saying, actually, I'm now not sure if what I'm seeing here even is collaboration, because maybe it's just partnership. And I think that illustrated kind of the rationale behind this study was to understand better the nature of collaboration, but why has it become so central to how not just how systems operate, but how they change, how they improve, and the challenges of actually achieving that. And so I think what I hope the research offered was a bit more clarity in terms of the concept of collaboration and what we mean by that. But ultimately, what I would summarise the research is kind of contributing is that collaboration is going to be defined and understood in different ways in different systems at different times, depending on that context. But that doesn't mean that we can't still have a shared understanding or operational definition of what we mean by collaboration. But for that to be successful and to have the impact that we want it to have, or just to have that impact, if we can even measure impact, if we want it to influence the system or practice within the system, we need to understand what drives collaboration. So what drivers have we put in place at a systems level or a much more micro level within schools um, or communities? Then understanding, well, what are the broader influences on this form of collaboration? But this also then needs to account for much broader concerns of power, agency, who initiates this, who who has the say in terms of the form it's going to take, whether you engage with it or not. I think that's what the fascinating insight that I think I drew from the analysis of the kind of policy context in Scotland was the power to initiate collaboration, despite the fact that it was such a huge emphasis across all layers of the system, with a huge emphasis on the middle tier and much more local levels as well. That despite this emphasis, the power to initiate varied forms of collaboration actually rests with fewer people now, given the restructure and despite that emphasis on collaboration at different levels. So that presents huge problems and huge challenges. But I think that's because of, or an assumption on the role of collaboration to bring about change and insufficient attention being paid to the complexity of collaboration as a concept and as a practice. So is it almost an assumption that it's it's happening or that it will happen and it will happen effectively without any checks, balances, procedures, norms, definitions, that putting people in a place together means they're collaborating? Is it is it that kind of an assumption or is it is it that it's top down rather than bottom up? I think it's a combination of the two, but I think what you've just articulated sums it up perfectly in the sense that there is this assumption that contemporary professionals that operate within the domain of professional standards, for example, in a professional system, know how to collaborate, it's going to happen. And I'll never forget, I presented this work early on in the um, research at the International Congress for School Effectiveness and Improvement. And it was really fascinating just to kind of get insights from different people from around the world. And I actually ended up problematizing this in both my first and my final chapter of the thesis, that when I was sharing this research, um, one person actually articulated at the end of that presentation saying, this is where the problem with research lies, as we try too hard to define things, whereas I just want to leave this to teachers to get on with because they know how to collaborate. 
But what was interesting was then the head teachers, the principals sitting at that same table, then came up afterwards to say, well, actually, the work that you're doing is exactly what we need because we've been saying we're doing this for years, but still don't know how to be doing it. And they're talking about the system more broadly. So that, to me, illuminated and was kind of an important experience at that stage as well. It eliminated the tensions that exist between what's happening within those that have a seat at the table and what's traditionally characterised as the policy domain and what's actually needed and emerging from context of practice. And I think that there's been really positive steps, particularly in the Scottish system that I've studied, to try and rethink what governance looks like and how the structure of the system operates to try and enable much more community responsive approaches to collaboration. But the way elements of it being executed still means that the power to initiate more varied forms of collaboration still rests with fewer people that happen to sit at the middle tier of the system in Scotland. I'm thinking because my PhD was on professional learning and then I ended up writing a book about effective or transformational professional learning and there was a chapter in there, chapter four, whole chapter, I remember it because it's probably one of the most important chapters, I think, on collaboration and that as a form of or lever for professional learning. And what I found was that both from my practice point of view and my research point of view, that collaboration really does need clarity of understanding. It's not just people being side by side or in a room together and it needs norms and it needs expectations of and it needs an understanding of what good collaboration looks like and probably one of the things that maybe we don't always see in schools is that it needs some discomfort it needs the capacity for people to honestly disagree gracefully respectfully but honestly disagree with one another in order for that better outcome to happen because the just either being in partnership or being in a room together or or saying, oh, you know, I've done this and you can add to that, that's not really actually collaborating. So mm. did you find some things about what, what are the bits that we need to make something collaboration as opposed to just a group of people working on something but not actually collaborating? What, what did you find that that is? Well, I think that's the kind of definition, which I'm not going to try and um, even articulate word for word, because I thought actually, well, one of the outcomes of the research, I didn't want it to be a definition of what collaboration is. I very much recognise the need to have an operational definition for collaboration throughout the thesis, but also to see what emerged from the participants that I was speaking with, as well as from the policy text. And I think, I mean, some of the things we wouldn't be surprised that characterise collaboration, I think the definitions that arose, and I'm using definitions very intentionally, were around sh- um, shared values, a joint um, joint work, a shared focus and an understanding of what each person actually brings to the table when they're coming together to collaborate. And I think this is that, and for me, that was the one of the most challenging elements that I think both participants, but also wasn't sufficiently addressed in the policy text either, was the emotional dimension of all of that. And I think that we can't underestimate the, the emotional dimension of coming together with others to be vulnerable and to put something on the table knowing that actually this could lead to something really exciting, but it could temporarily lead to some forms of conflict, discomfort, like you mentioned. There's a huge emotional load that sits with that. Mm-hmm. And I think the the reason that I think I would be reluctant and I still feel a little bit uncomfortable with forms of collaboration that we see happening that rely on protocols or um, more specified approaches that we see emerging in lots of different systems is the fact that it does the heavy lifting often too much for those coming together to collaborate. It does that heavy lifting on their behalf too frequently. Um, Not all these forms, but I think what's important is that 
we're able to, as a group that are coming together to collaborate, is to start off with that heavy lifting in terms of what processes do we need to go through to actually come to an understanding of who are you, what's important to you, and what is you want to bring to this table, and how you understand your role as being a participant in this form of collaboration. Because if we don't come to grips or don't come to an understanding together of each other and get to grips with the drivers behind this form of collaboration, then I don't think we can sufficiently actually understand or even anticipate what's going to be possible from it in a way that will lead to some form of sustained or positive outcome. Because it's too complex an experience, it's too emotional experience as well. But also I think that people coming together if we rely on just an assumption that we can expect this from each other as professionals, it does a disservice to the, I guess, the emotional dimension and discomfort that's going to be needed to actually be able to do anything significant together. So we're back to understanding self and identity, where I think we began. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and and if I think about, as you've been talking, I've been thinking about that idea about identity and self and teachers collaborating because teacher identity is often so personal. People are so personally committed to educating young people, to education, to teaching, to their beliefs about what it is that they're bringing to their students. Uh, And so collaboration and that vulnerability that you talked about can be so challenging because it seems some feels sometimes to people I think like a personal attack. If there's disagreement, it's it's not a distant disagreement, it's a disagreement about something that's really core to them. Did any of that come out in your participant interviews? Yeah, I think one of the key things that came through was the human dimension to or professional work. And that it was actually a really tricky concept to, I guess, make sense of or to get some clarity on. But it was this fact that we can talk about and we can frame the work of educators as being part of a profession. We talk about practitioners a lot, which I find hugely problematic as well, because it sounds like they're doing a very technical role that can actually be easily described and therefore prescribed as well, which it's not. And I think that how we understand education and the work of educators as being something that has to be hugely personal and driven by values, driven by a commitment to what they want to achieve for young people, for the community. That's what then illuminates that this is a hugely emotional thing. And I think that what was interesting from the participants themselves, I only interviewed um, head teachers or principals. And what was interesting was it was the varied starting points of people that are coming together to collaborate but about recognising what they offer is something different, unique, but equally important. The challenge that always exists is the fact that when these these diverse groups do come together in a hugely emotional process focused on a really deeply human endeavour like education, like teaching, is that not everyone shares that understanding or shares the value that we might attribute to the collaboration that we're engaging in. And I think this is what consistently takes me back to these broader themes of power, agency and control, and even the role of these broader connected concepts that are much more dominant in systems now, like empowerment, is who actually is exercising control over the very forms that collaboration takes and for what reasons. And the reason I think that's important to be constantly addressing and applying that consistent critical lens is because that will have a clear, direct consequence on not just the nature the collaboration takes, what's even possible from it. And I think that's what's often missing at the broader systems level. And it's what I can see and what the participants think were illuminating is what they were grappling with. They're leaders within schools that are trying to 
make these connections and understand the complexity of their systems, how they are now, and how they can then utilize that to make decisions about, right, well, what form, can this, what form of collaboration is even possible? What's going to be driving it? And what outcomes can we expect? And sometimes that does take a critical lens or even just the bravery to go against the norm, to go against what's been mandated and make a decision on, that's not what my community needs right now. This is what I'm going to focus on. And others kind of find this kind of in-between stage, which I found fascinating, where particularly through the transcription process, was how leaders become very skilled and using the vocabulary markers that dominate the discourse around policy within systems to rationalize their approaches, particularly when they recognize they need to do something that deviates from the norm. They can still use the vocabulary markers to rationalize or legitimize the approach they're taking. So that might just be a light slap in the wrist rather than being told, no, you need to be doing it this way or be doing it that way. And I think the political work that sits in and around collaboration at every level of the system is what I think is hugely fascinating and still needs further exploration and connection with how the concept of empowerment is being mobilised and used across systems as well. So you're talking there about leaders' autonomy and resistance, but resistance that is acceptable within the system. But I was Mm -hmm. also thinking as you were talking about leaders needing to be also able to not use their own agendas to push certain kinds of collaboration with certain kinds of people that actually if we do really do value different perspectives and all perspectives then we also need to make sure that the collaboration is including perspectives that maybe are, are resistant to us or are potentially those people who you, who might be thought of as you know I've heard them called dissenters or laggards or I think you know we really need to be inclusive of all of the people and all of the perspectives that they can bring because that's how we make better decisions and Absolutely. get better outcomes for our students. And I think that's what's so exciting, I think, about further research into the concept of collaboration, because I think often when people hear research, collaboration, there's certain authors that will come to mind, there's certain approaches that will call to mind as well. But I would still argue that there's still a lack of conceptual clarity within the field of research and within practice as well. And I think that what this offers us is the opportunity to take a much more critical lens whether that is through practice spaces, research spaces, or policy spaces, to enable the critique of the varied forms that collaboration takes itself, but also enabling those to offer critical insight into what should and maybe shouldn't be driving collaboration and coming to an understanding of what would influence this form of collaboration. And I think that for me, it always comes back to everyone being able to build a shared understanding of and offer critique or critical insight into the forms, the drivers and the influences on collaboration. Thank you. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together and so I'm going to move us to what I like to call the enlightening round, our final five questions. (laughs) The first of which is, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? Well, there's a few that I think I could choose from here, but I tend to maybe be perceived as having academic and professional skills and that comes at a consequence of not very many life skills, as in I've reached this age that I'm at without being able to swim or drive. So there are two things that are on my bucket list now after I've finished the thesis. So you became a doctor of philosophy before you became a automobile driver. <laughs> an automobile <laughs> driver or a swimmer. <laughs> or a swimmer. Which one's going to come Which one comes first? Uh, I want to say a swimmer, but I think actually driving is going to be easier. So it's probably that first. <laughs> 
There you go. Um, and as you say, like it's where you've put your time and effort perhaps and also where you've maybe culturally grown up. I don't think you can't grow up in um, Western Australia without being a swimmer because you just it's just uh, not something you can survive, Absolutely. I don't think. Uh, what about what about something, Paul, that's currently on your desk? There's one thing that's always on my desk and it might be up here a bit random, but it's a light cotton scented candle and it has to be the scent of light cotton. I've realised over what? 12 years of studying, but that's the one thing that helps me kind of focus. I can't listen to music. I can't have any noise in the background, but a light cotton scented candle is always on my desk. That's your writing scent. My writing scent. Absolutely. I like that. <laughs> I have heard, I have heard of writing playlists. I hadn't heard of a writing candle before, but um, that's, so that's gets you into that zone of, of yeah. focusing. That could be a new hashtag or maybe a book, writing scents. I like that. <laughs> Um, what about someone who inspires you in your work if I can cheat and offer two but I'll start with one I'm really inspired by the work of Amanda Datnow her work around the emotional dimension of change of improvement of collaboration had a huge impact on me professionally and then as a consequence um, with my research as well and I think that even how I still remember her keynote at XA 2018 I think it was in Stavanger or maybe 2017 and I still remember the way she characterised and understood her role as a researcher. The amount of time she spent just as part of the school community, it was it was illuminating in terms of the possibilities of what education research can look like. But then, consequentially, the impact that she has has been really inspiring. But I always have to come back to the first words and the dedication of my thesis always went to Mrs. Furlong, Valerie Furlong, who I still love to this day. She started at my primary school when I started in primary one, which was the very first year group of the school. Um, so she always said she had this special connection with us because we started school at the same time. And I still remember lining up as a four, four and a half year old, and there would be a queue in the classroom every single time she walked into the room. But the thing that was special about her was she was always down at your level, and she was basically always nearly this close from your face as well. But it was the warmth and the love that actually just it was just illuminated from her in whatever room that she walked into. And she's the one that it was always clear she wanted the very best for every single member of that community and would do anything to make sure that's exactly what they got. And that's what inspired me to get into education. And it's what I still strive to do every day. And that's all thanks to Valerie Furlong. And hopefully I'll find it at some point to be able to tell it in person as well. Well, that's a really powerful story about something that stuck with you from a really young age about mm-hmm. the power of a teacher and of education and of schooling. Amazing. Absolutely. What's something that you've got coming up that you're excited about? Well, I think you mentioned the start. So I'm leading a program just now, which is we called the, the Seeds of Leadership. Um, and this is with colleagues that are either new to middle leadership or aspiring into senior leadership across the foundation of 22 schools. And we're coming towards the end of the program. And next week, it's the kind of final conference where they're presenting their culminating task. And it's been really exciting because throughout the year we've connected with the likes of Stephen Courtney, Helen Gunter, uh, Jill Blackmore, um, really inspiring, Pat Thompson as well, which was really amazing. And it's been great to see how now at this stage they're connecting and synthesizing some of these big ideas from how they've engaged with these authors and researchers and practitioners, but they're orientating it towards a problem of practice and developing both a professional inquiry proposal but also um, a strand of their um, school improvement agendas for the following year. So they'll be presenting this not only to the rest of their cohort, but our internal research conference and the leadership teams from each of their schools too. So it's been really exciting working with them as they kind of craft these final proposals. 
but also I'm really looking forward just to seeing next week how they engage with the rest of the community and then the continued engagement next year in terms of what impact it has. Because for me, it just kind of embodies this intersection between practice policy and research. I'm excited to see how this actually manifests itself in reality. That sounds really exciting. And my final question is, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would like to leave listeners with? I'll go back to what has been, I think, at the foundation of the common thread through, I think, everything I've done. And it's, I firmly believe that education has to be about how we enable everyone to develop a sense of self, who they are, their place within all the communities they're a part of, and how they use that to be able to take action in the varied ways that they deem it necessary or that's important for the community. Because I think that applies to the four-year-olds that are coming into my school or applies to what I hope the professionals that I'm engaging with as well. I think that's what should characterise our being as, as learners, as educators. And I think that if we shared that common view in the very ways, very de- definitions that that might take, education really can meet its goals of a better world, a better future and improvement more generally. So I think that that's the one thing that sticks with me and I hope would stick with others as well. Well, thank you, Paul. That's a very optimistic way to end. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.